Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Monster job numbers in the United States as the Federal Reserve slows the rate of its short-term borrowing rate increases as optimism builds that an economic recovery is underway. Wall Street also responds to defense and aerospace earnings as Boeing announces a fourth 737 production line. In Everett, as the last 747-8 is delivered, Northrop Grumman announces a major buyback program, and advanced chip maker Mercury is forced by activist investors to consider putting itself on the market. As the first anniversary of its attack on Ukraine nears, Russia is launching a major offensive before new Western arms like infantry fighting vehicles and tanks arrive in Ukraine uh, as Washington continues to reject combat aircraft deliveries to Kiev. And Beijing's drive to improve relations with Washington took a major hit uh, when uh, Washington discovered uh, a Chinese spy balloon uh, that flew across the, the United States. Uh, prompting the postponement of Secretary of State Tony Blinken's uh, visit to China, where he was to meet with Xi Jinping, uh, despite criticism that the drone was allowed, uh, excuse me, that the balloon was allowed to fly across the country. Uh, it was eventually shot down off the coast of South Carolina, and a major recovery mission uh, is underway to retrieve the payload uh, that is now apparently about six miles off uh, the South Carolina coast. Joining us today to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy uh, in Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks very much. Welcome back to the program. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Happy Sunday, Vago. Great to be on. Uh, indeed. Uh, great uh, great to have everybody on. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Leonardo DRS, HII, and GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, sponsored our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's and annual uh, symposium. Ron, uh, start us off um, really uh, encouraging jobs uh, numbers, and uh, the Fed gave uh, the street the smaller interest rate hike uh, that it wanted. Uh, confidence appears to be uh, growing that central bankers might be getting this right, controlling inflation without crashing uh, the economy. Um, you know, how did the group uh, perform and what sort, you know, I mean, obviously earnings, uh, we had a, another monster earnings week last week, uh, and some of those numbers are, are soaking in. Sort of walk us through how the group uh, performed against uh, the broader market and what we should be expecting going forward. Yeah, sure. The S&P was up about a percent and a half. Uh, Boeing uh, was down two and a half percent. Northrop was, was flat. Lockheed was flat. General Dynamics was up about 2%. Raytheon was down 3%. L3 Harris was flat. Uh, so a, a trend there, right? I mean, the, the defense companies um, were you know, basically flat on the week. Commercial stuff was down. Um, and then if you look at some of the more, um, uh, how can I say it, growth sensitive stuff, uh, Rocket Lab's a good example of that. It was up almost 8% of the week. Uh, you know, the VIX index was you know, bumping along around 18, 19 for most of the week. The 10 year yield, uh, on the 10-year treasury was about three and a half percent. It's been kind of hanging out there for a while. Uh, the, the jobs number on, on Friday, I think really threw the market for a little bit of a loop. 
because um, my sense is folks are still trying to figure out what it means, right? So, you know, 517,000 new jobs, that's, that's a good thing. Um, but if you're trying to control labor inflation, that might not be a good thing. Uh, and, and I think it caught a lot of people by surprise because there's you know, big headline companies, uh, particularly in the tech sector, have laid off folks. But in other parts right. of the economy, like our sector, people are looking for people. Right? I mean, companies are looking to, to try to hire people. Right. So um, there's a debate, I think, right now between um, those that say, hey, maybe you know, a soft landing could happen, uh, which if it did, that's great. Usually never does. Uh, but if it did, that'd be awesome. Or um, the Fed's going to have to keep keep raising rates. Uh, typically, you know, the Fed tends to stop raising um, when the labor market cools off and the labor market really hasn't cooled off. At least that's what these numbers said. So we'll see. I mean, it's a, I think it's a, a, a bit of a tug of war on that um, in the market right now. Oil prices, another thing we tend to talk about, uh, they've been pretty steady. WTI around $73, $74. Brent crude around 80 One of the things we started looking at uh, more recently, and this was a, a thing that uh, pardon the pun, popped up last year. I um, mean, and it's still um, elevated. It, you know, oil prices are one thing, but when you when you think about our industry and in, in jet fuel, it's you got to look at crack spreads, and crack spreads are two, three times where they normally would be, um, and that's what drives the price of jet fuel. So, uh, and a crack spread is the, you know the difference between oil and the distillate. Um, so you're looking at you know jet fuel crack spreads that are you know in the in the 40s, uh, and they're generally well well below that. Um, so, so we'll see, but that, that's, I think that's a good roundup uh, of what's going on. Well, let me um, just uh, pull on that for a second. Northrop announced, I think what it was a half a billion dollar share, uh, buyback, right? I mean, almost all the companies, that's how they're deploying their cash. It's sort of a standard thing. Uh, you know, we saw that from Lockheed as well as from, uh, L3. Why, why do you think it didn't help them? Uh, well, there's, there's, I mean, you know, on, um, it, it did to some degree, right? I mean, the, the shares were down on the week. Uh, the Northrop shares have been uh, you know, dealing with the perceptions on you know, what exactly uh, does the LRIP or B21 mean for the company. Um, you know, they said in their 10K and they said in their earnings call that you know, at this point, if they look out, including inflation, it could very well be no profit or even negative profit. Uh, and, and I think that surprised a lot of folks. So you know, the market's just trying to, to digest that. Um, if you look at the performance of the defense companies when they buy back shares, they 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 tend to outperform. That's that's one of the reasons they do it. Another reason um, you're seeing you know the likes of of Lockheed and Northrop and, and others buy back shares, they can't do M and A in the current environment, right? Or any any M and A of consequence. Uh, so even if you were in the camp to criticize the companies that they don't spend enough on A, B, or C. They still have a lot of excess capital. So instead of just having it sit on the balance sheet, um, this is a way to deploy it, particularly when you think your shares are at a depressed valuation. Uh, and, and let me ask you one last quick question. And everybody, thanks uh, for your patience. I want to get to the mercury issue, right? Um, a lot of folks were surprised. Mercury, very innovative company. Uh, a lot of very thoughtful people. Chips are you know, front and center uh, as a national uh, strategic uh, 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 priority, um, something the company does really well. Uh, again, lots of very innovative people. But we saw this activist investor sort of force the company's hand. Uh, and they, you know, they, they said, you know, the precious words, right? We're doing a strategic review uh, on whether to put themselves on the market. Um, what does that sort of tell us? Uh, um, Brandon, how are you reading that? 
because it's an interesting time to be trying to do that at a time when we don't fully understand what the limits of this administration's merger and acquisition policies are, right? I mean, Aerojet Rocketdyne failed. It looks like they are, you know, that L3 Harris might be successful in acquiring the company. We saw a very important transaction for Booz Allen Hamilton that was turned down, right? Uh, what do you, what do you, what, what's the thinking up on the street? Because obviously any transaction like this is going to get a lot of scrutiny given the importance of what Mercury does. If you, if you look at Mercury's share price performance up until the point where um, several activists got involved, the shares were meaningfully underperforming uh, you know, other defense companies, the defense group writ large. And a lot of that had to do with uh, they stopped growing. Uh, and, and, and that surprised a lot of people. And so the shares, no big surprise. And generally, share price growth is tied to uh, free cash flow growth, earnings growth. And you know, kind of, you know the story. Uh, that stopped. The shares stopped going up, actually went down. Uh, the activists got involved and the shares kind of reflected that and then sort of just sort of just started to sell off again. So it's just, I think it's a, it's a way for um, the company to try to get great value for their shareholders of which today um, there's, there's some activists uh, on their earnings call. The company didn't really talk about it, you know, offline, the company didn't really talk about it. So we'll, right. we'll see, we'll see where it all plays out. Um, you know, it's um, it, it's hard to be specific on it when when the company's really not sharing a heck of a lot about it. Um, so so we'll see. Now, presumably, it was activists that forced this card, but maybe not. We don't know. They didn't say. Right. Um, so so it's just something to watch. Well, it was uh, just responding more than anything to uh, the financial coverage on it, which uh, certainly um, led us uh, in that direction. Uh, Sash, uh, walk us through. Um, thanks uh, for your patience. Uh, right, Bank of England also has made a modest uh, rate uh, hike, trying to follow the Fed in, in being not too hot, not too cold uh, in a time when the British economy and European inflation is running a little bit hotter. Um, you know, Talk to us about how the group performed uh, in your very encouraging order, and we're going to get into greater detail on it maybe a little bit later, but you can get into it as much detail as you want. The Aster, France and Italy banding together to buy the Aster, uh, any air missile, certainly Europe's preeminent uh, such air defense weapon. Anyway, walk us through how the group performed and why. I just want to follow up on um, Mercury Systems, first of all. Um, just a, a sort of slight warning from the UK. Um, if you haven't got a really strong, um, coherent mer you know, mergers and acquisitions policy, with what to do when firms are bought by private equity. You either need to get one very fast indeed, uh, or you're going to lose everything or pretty much anything that you value out Mercury Systems. Um, the example, I mean, there were reports on Bloomberg last week that um, Advent, the private equity company, which, um, which bought Cobham and then Ultra Electronics in the UK, um, is studying a, um, a deal for Mercury to fold Mercury into um, some of the, the former Cobham businesses. What I would say was that, um, Advent said all the right things when it bought Cobham, but Cobham does not exist except in name anymore. It was taken to pieces, bits were sold off to the, you know, the highest bidders, and the UK has no business um, and really very little control over what was once Cobham. The UK was much more um, savvy when uh, Advent bid for Ultra, and there are some restrictions on whether parts of Ultra can be sold off or not, whether they can, whether the, you know, whether foreign nationals are allowed to look at those or whether those are UK eyes only, but it's very, very poor. And there, the UK defense electronics um, and 
aircraft systems business has not come out of this at all well uh, because we didn't have a, an industrial policy. You better have one for Mercury, otherwise you'll lose it. My view only. Uh, you know, other other views may be available. Um, uh, so, um, you know, what happened in what happened in Europe? Um, we had uh, both the European Central Bank and the Bank of England raise rates interest rates by half a percent, which is pretty punchy. Um, bank, the Bank of England uh, base rate now is uh, 4%, European Central Bank at 2.5%. Um, the Bank of England was really slow into this. Bank of England has been, I would say, about you know, nearly two tactical bounds behind every other bank. And that's why UK rates have had to, to go so high. Um, European Central Bank has been somewhere in between uh, the Bank of England and uh, the Fed. Um, bond markets in Europe really liked the, you know, what was said about the European Central Bank raising rates and uh, European bond markets were very, very strong, particularly uh, Germany. Um, in the UK, there is a concern that we still have very, very high inflation and um, Bank of England may not have finished raising yet. What effect did this have on stocks? On its answer, absolutely, absolutely nothing. Um, uh, you know, Airbus was flat, BA off a percent or two, Rolls-Royce off a percent, a couple of other stocks, MTU, Kinetic up one and a half. But net, the sector was flat as a flat thing. So, you know, the action was elsewhere last week. Uh, indeed. Uh, very, very interesting indeed. And we're going to get into a little bit deeper detail uh, into what uh, that transaction means as Europe sort of steps up its, its broader game. Um, Richard, uh, I want to bring you in and ask you uh, about uh, the outlook uh, for trade with China. Obviously, China was on a pretty big charm offensive. Uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was going to go to China, meet with Xi Jinping um, as, as she uh, is making a whole bunch of internal reforms, um, not being as restrictive at home, try to be a little bit more flexible, um, try to maintain as much um, the foreign capital in China as possible, even though there looks like there is, we're poised for a really uh, massive um, exodus, uh, as, as we've been seeing, which is not good if you're the factory of the world. Um, and then Beijing goes ahead and floats a reconnaissance balloon over the United States. Um, we found out that it happened three times during the Trump presidency. Uh, neither, none of those were uh, shot down or nothing was really said about them. Uh, this time it became public uh, secretary of state, just like after the U2 uh, was um, shot down in May 1960 over Russia, uh, the big summit meeting, Khrushchev canceled the big summit meeting with Eisenhower. Um, so good thing we did it. We didn't engage it as quickly as possible, but we did shoot it down and only Beijing could take umbrage uh, that we shot down their alleged uh, weather balloon, right? So that takes and I say this as a New Yorker on Upper West Sider, that takes some real chutzpah. <laughs> um, Indeed. Uh, right? Uh, I think yes, as New Yorkers, as New Yorkers and New Jerseyites, right? Three of us are from New York and New Jersey, and the other guy's from London who also understands from chutzpah. So, um, you know, what does this mean for the outlook uh, for trade? Um, because it has driven home to people in a way you know, sort of the brazenness of this, it did become a national story and drove it home. And you could argue it played into the administration, you know, right? I mean, there were some who say that actually the way that it played accentuated the challenge uh, as opposed to making it a quick, short story, right? Drove home 
you know, even though the, the, the Pentagon was saying, you know, this poses no risk, it's not really collecting any meaningful intelligence. That's a matter of debate. We'll see after we investigate the wreckage that's being recovered now. Anyway, walk us through how this episode plays into the entire trade model from your perspective. Yeah, there's an awful lot going on here, of course. And I'd also point out that I think in London, Chutzpah is pronounced, this is not entirely without irony and uh, and uh, nerve <laughs> so, or, or something like that. Uh, that's, the, that's the British translation for Chutzpah there, Sash. Um, you know, Thank we're, you. we're, 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 we're <laughs> And also elegantly devoid of profanity, as we would have, because normally Chutzpah is preceded by um, a, a, another word. Anyway, go yes, ahead. Yes, yes, an F-bomb of some sort. Uh, I... You know, look, we're feeling our way along here. Uh, the point's been made that this is not Cold War 2.0. This is Cold War 2.0 with interlinked economies and a very strong, what had been market economy growth story, but it clearly is a Cold War. And the reason nothing happened, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll defend the Trumpies. I, you know, the reason nothing happened during those three overfights is because I don't think we'd gone full bore Cold War yet. That doesn't excuse the Trumpies like Marjorie Taylor Greene for criticizing Biden without also saying it was Trump, but in Trump's defense, it wasn't Cold War then. It is now, and we're feeling our way along. And as we know, in all circumstances, at all times, there's some degree of surveillance and reconnaissance overflight, if only by satellites, you know, and also possibly by very high altitude manned and unmanned aircraft. And of course, now this ridiculous balloon. Um, we're fueling our way along. Clearly, this is not acceptable. Uh, yes, it was, you know, triple dipping chutzpah to complain about it. Uh, it could have happened by accident or not by accident. You know, a faction within the the PRC that wanted to derail um, any degree of rapprochement between the U.S. and China. You never can tell with these things. You know, as we found out in the Cold War, you know, very few things happened by accident on, on their side. But let's assume that this is more of a, you know, a determined effort to gather intelligence on, on the U.S. And in that case, we have to make it clear that this is not acceptable. And we obviously did that. We also, I think, should be clear about in the future what is acceptable uh, on both sides, because, you know, we do it, too. Obviously, satellites are, are, you know, off limits and ASAT weapons are not to be tolerated. <laughs> have to make that clear. We have to have a series of, I think, conversations where we say, you can do this, you can't do that, we will shoot it down. Um, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see what they see in the wreckage in terms of what sort of sensors they had, just optical, multispectral, whatever. It's going to be interesting indeed. Um, I. I also think that it would be good to get everybody allied with the U.S. on the same page so that, you know, future reconnaissance efforts um, are coordinated and, um, you know, we just have less confusion. But, you know, the picture that emerges here is, assuming that was uh, indeed coordinated at the highest level, is one of incompetence. I mean, this is just foolish because they'd been walking back the wolf warrior diplomacy, trying to have a softer, gentler touch, still making enemies, but trying harder to not make enemies. And then this, that's just, just incompetence. And you, know, you look at the Times, New York Times story today about the number of high-ranking academics who've suddenly started dying of COVID. It's pretty clear that they're not talking about the death count going on here. And that is also fascinating. Now, in terms of trade, I'm, I'm, everyone has a hedge, you know? I mean, every company that has uh, a position 
in China is now thinking about hedges. They're looking at Vietnam. They're looking at Mexico, whatever else. That's been true in the aerospace industry for some time. It is starting to show up in the foreign direct investment numbers. You know, you look at what Rhodium Group tracks. They're a really interesting resource for FDI numbers. And, uh, you know, the Chinese aren't doing their economy any favors. You know, in an ideal world, we'd find a way to avoid massive disruption, uh, despite the fact that we are heading into Cold War 2.0. That's that's where we're already in it. Um, and hopefully it won't be too disruptive, but I fear it just might. Yeah, I'm, I've just got, you know, one question, and it's a, it's a very broad hypothetical. You know, clearly driving a satellite over another country that's, that's fair, fair, fair dues. We do it, they do it, everyone does it. Um, space is still just about deemed to be, you know, open to everybody. And hence, you can, you can fly something in space, look down, and even if no, you know, it's not that no harm is done, but we accept that. A high altitude balloon is, um, you know, is perceived to be very, very different. But, you know, space starts somewhere. What, you know, where do we draw the line? There isn't, despite what the Chinese say, a, you know, a legal definition of what is permissible. Um, if this was a high altitude aircraft flying at broadly the same altitude, which I would understand to be, you know, 70, 80,000 feet, that would have been a different, different matter. But, you know, it, it does seem to me that, that probably there, there does need to be some, some rules that are um, redefined here for, for, for stuff like this. Well, I mean, I would, I would, I would point out a U two flies at more than seventy thousand feet, um, and I will guarantee you that if a U two went over China, it would be shot down, um, and any more than yeah. uh, you know any other platform if they could shoot it down. Um, so, you know, I think we all understand, given how many reconnaissance pilots were lost and reconnaissance crews were lost during the Cold War, uh, as we flew a whole series of airplanes. Um, you know, over and around Soviet airspace that collected intelligence, but at an extremely high cost, right? I mean, so I, I think at the end of the day, if, if, it's, if it's in the air over your country, you're allowed to shoot it down, I think, yeah. if you can. Yeah. Okay, and the other point I wanted to make is this comes at exactly the wrong uh, time for, for Boeing, and for the Chinese civil aerospace industry. Um, Boeing needs to get back into China. Boeing ranked third last year in terms of deliveries to China, actually ranked third over the last four years in terms of deliveries to China. The bull case is that Boeing will get back into the Chinese market again. The Chinese will buy a whole load of Maxes and everything will be good. Um, so we'll see about that. The flip side of that from the point of the Chinese is they need the smooth flow of all those Western engines and avionics and aircraft systems so that they can ramp the uh, C919. Um, they just don't need, the Chinese civil aerospace industry does not need this sort of mess at this stage of, you know, when particularly the 919 is at a very, very delicate stage of its pro uh, uh, program. And just a quick word, uh, urging everybody to check out our weekly podcast, Canvas Ships, hosted by Chris Canvas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our new Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own JJ uh, Gertler. 
Ron, I want to uh, go to the uh, 737, uh, talk a little bit, uh, have Sash talk a little bit about Airbus uh, and Qatar, uh, and then also a little bit of the legacy of the 747 before we talk about more defense-specific uh, uh, themes. Uh, Ron, I think there are a lot of folks who are saying fourth 737 facility right in their minds. Uh, and, and we're talking about, obviously, uh, the 737 going into the uh, production, going into the Everett facility, which is very welcome as the 747-8 and uh, the 747 line overall uh, ends at that. Uh, I mean, honestly, the world's most incredible industrial facility. Let's just put it flat out. Uh, having seen it operating at full tilt, I mean, it's it's a wonder. It's just a wonder. Um but there are a lot of folks who are saying, okay, we know 737 has come out of Renton, uh, the world's most efficient, tiny facility, thanks in part to the great work that Spirit Aerosystems does, giving them complete fuselages. They know there's a paint center in China, and they're scratching their heads, and they're like, wait a minute, I don't know what third is, much less now we've got a fourth. Walk us through what the Everett line uh, means uh, for the program overall, and who's doing what, where ultimately, and what the lines of demarcation are going to be product and otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of factors that go into this. Um, Boeing has been struggling to get up to rate, as as has Airbus, but Airbus is struggling at a higher level. <laughs> so, you know, Boeing's trying to you know get more aircraft in the market uh, to try to catch up on market share, at least in uh, in the near term. Uh, so, that one, it's to help that. Two, uh, I don't think you can ignore the fact it's probably throwing a bone to the union. Uh, because uh, there's no longer 787 stuff being done in, uh, in the Everett facility. Three, um, it gives you another line to deal with supply chain uh, disruption. Um, so you can have more aircraft spread out across different lines uh, and you can deal with uh, traveled work or traveled parts or however you want to frame it. Uh, so it gives you some flexibility there. And then also, uh, and I think this is an interesting point, as uh, narrow-body aircraft have been um, tax, tasked with ever-increasing missions in terms of range and so on and so forth, that also comes with uh, you know, more uh, customization of the aircraft. You know, typically, narrow-bodies weren't all that customized, uh, but when you're deploying the aircraft on uh, longer-range missions, uh, you're going to have you're going to desire as an airline to have more flexibility around uh, lavatories and galleys and so on and so forth. So. That adds another level of complication in the fabrication process. So I think it's it's a combination of issues. Uh, clearly, it will um, help them get to where they need to get to, uh, but for for a number of different reasons. But remember, it doesn't come without a price, right? So um, you're you know Boeing's trying to get back to 50 aircraft per month, maybe higher at some point. Um, they they struggled to get to I think it was 52 or 53 out of the running right. facility before. Um, but so you'll be doing, trying to get to that same rate with yet another line, more heads, uh, and a little more complication. Is this just a way to put something into Everett to delay? That's a lot of facility for the airplanes that are coming out of it. Well, I mean, if you right. think about it, I mean, I think, I think this might not be true anymore, but at one point that Everett building was the largest building in the world by volume. Um, it's yes. still probably up there on the list. Um, I haven't counted my buildings lately, uh, but it's a very large facility. Um, so this is another way to uh, maybe to absorb some overhead off of it. Uh, right. I was thinking for a moment that maybe if you put P8s on that line, um, you could maybe really, uh, absorb some overhead and, and charge it to uh, the Department of Defense. But uh, because of ITAR uh, constraints and you know, rules around that, that would be actually probably not all that doable uh, there. 
Um, so, um, yes, you could, but it's expensive to do. It's expensive building, but I guess you're paying to have that building kind of on anyway. So why not put something in it? They, they should have put seven, eight more seven, eight work, but they did it because right. They had a battle with the union. McNerney wanted to break the union. And so they ended up in South Carolina. I mean, it, it is, it is what it is. Um, but, but let me, let me add one point. I mean, just, sure. just to be fair. Um, if you, if you think about South Carolina, you were flying um, sections from Japan to South Carolina where they were getting integrated, um, you know, that center section. And then that was going on the Dreamlifter and going up to Seattle. And then by having everything centrally located in South Carolina, you are making the flow simpler. I mean, arguably you really are because you're, you're chopping out that piece of the so-called spaghetti graph. Uh, you know, you're losing that, that spaghetti. Right. You know, it's just going to South Carolina and then leaving from right. there. So, I mean, there might be, besides the union stuff, there actually might be or, good supply or, or chain no, no. I mean, I'm, Yeah, Right, but they opened in South Carolina to stick it to the union, right? I mean, so I, if they did, hadn't have taken that step, they wouldn't be in the mess that they are now. And then that, yes, that drives the but efficiency it, to try to cut out of it. If I may, may I? This is sure. one more thing here. They opened in South Carolina, ultimately, because, I mean, you know, I probably get in trouble for saying this, but... The, the whole South Carolina facility was sort of a grand accident, right? I mean, originally the South Carolina facility was Vought Aircraft and Global right. Aeronautica, right? Which was this JV with um, Alenia. Um, all that kind of fell apart in the whole supply chain debacle early on in, in the 787 program. And, and when, when Vought literally handed Boeing the keys to uh, the 787 program, they had to do something with South Carolina. So I, right. I, I think you're right. I mean, it was convenient and, and worked well with with the, uh, the, their union concerns. But ultimately, the reason they ended up there is, is their initial supply chain strategy was an epic failure. Um, yes, uh, uh, ample discussion and uh, a discussion to be had over, or over beers, uh, given my past conversations uh, with uh, leaders uh, at, uh, uh, at uh, the great American aerospace company. Uh, Richard, um, give us uh, your uh, thoughts, uh, and then Sash, want to get to you on Airbus, Qatar, and anything else you want to say on this before we uh, talk about some important defense uh, questions. Go ahead, uh, Richard. Yeah, you know, agree completely with Ron. Of course, just a couple things to add on. You know, I, you know, as as Ron himself has said many times, this is fast becoming or has become a pure play commercial jetliner story, and the one lever they pull is, of course, more seven thirty seven. So it's not just the uh, decision to establish this line, it's also the message it sends to investors that we're going to get to rate 50, maybe 57 again, and that way we'll be rolling in free cash flow. You'll be happy. So I'm not so sure. And that feeds into my concern uh, that it might just be more for show than for reality, because since when has the final assembly line been a major, or availability of the final assembly line, been a major limiting factor here? Uh, I mean, Labor has been a factor. Engines have been a very big factor. Right. Um, and of course, uh, you know, Spirit gets uh, gets blamed too, despite the, the rather impressive achievement they've got there. Um, in other words, it doesn't appear to be, the availability of another FACO doesn't appear to be a limb fact, as they say, in increasing 737 output. That might well change, or this could be for investor relations. I don't know. Uh, in, indeed. Sash, uh, you've had your hand up. Uh, Take it in any direction and then yeah. tackle uh, uh, Airbus uh, Qatar. I'm convinced that Boeing has opened this um, fourth line uh, at Everett, not um, 
particularly to you know to to, to raise rates. I mean, I'd remind you clearly, it, it, it's fascinating. Airbus and Boeing just do things very, very differently. Still, Airbus has got eight going to nine different final assembly assembly lines. Um, you know, two in Toulouse, one in in Tianjin, soon to be a second, um, two in Mobile. You know, three, four in in Hamburg. Having all those final assembly lines hasn't enabled Airbus to you know to avoid having to cut its um, delivery targets twice in 2022. Um, the issue in this industry is the supply chain, not the number of fouls you have. Um, but, you know, Boeing clearly has an astonishingly large uh, factory with very little work going through it. Put some extra work into it and at least you're covering your overheads. The logical thing to do for growth ultimately would have been to put, open a final assembly line somewhere abroad. It is astonishing to me that Boeing still, Boeing management still think that you can be a, a global leader in uh, aviation and produce every single one of your aircraft uh, in the US. But that's clearly the, the decision they made. And talk to us about the Airbus uh, Qatar uh, spat. Yeah. I mean, we've covered this on and off in terms of a, 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 the, the saga. Um, what does it mean and what are everybody's motives? I'm going to give you a quick bite at this and then move on to the 747 really quick and then uh, get back to some of the defense uh, items we've got to cover yeah, as sure. well. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the most toxic relationship between an OEM and an airline that I can remember. Um, you know, Airbus takes one of the, or I can't even remember now whether Airbus took Qatar to court or Qatar took Airbus to court. Um, but they were, you know, there was a London court case about $2 billion uh, of uh, damages, and they have finally um, settled out of court. Um, what do we know? We know that Qatar has been reinstated as a customer for uh, the A321 aircraft, um, which it always wanted, but Air Airbus unilaterally um, pulled that order last year, and the A350s, which was the cause of the problem in the first place, because they were showing some delamination of the uh, paint and skin. Um, it's reported by Reuters that Airbus will um, pay uh, some hundreds of millions of dollars and, and help um, with uh, repairs, maybe even do the repairs themselves. I, despite that, I can't help feeling this is probably a better deal for Airbus than it is for Qatar. Qatar gets the aircraft it wants later than they wanted. Um, Airbus is are buying themselves out of some incredibly onerous penalty clauses for delays. Basically, every day that an, uh, an aircraft was delayed uh, from delivery, Airbus was uh, on the hook for tens and tens of thousands in terms of penalties. Uh, and that's where the $2 billion uh, comes from. Um, utterly brutal. So frankly, if you can buy yourself out of those liabilities for a couple of hundred million, I'd take that every day. Let's uh, quickly talk about the legacy of uh, the 747. Uh, obviously, one of the most important uh, airplanes in history, popularized uh, flying in a way that no other platform had. Uh, the last of um, 1,574 uh, of what was until the introduction of the A380, world's largest airplane uh, in service. It has outlasted in production. Uh, the um, A380, uh, and was emblematic of Boeing's historic ability to sort of bet the company, right? It bet the company on the 707 and one. It bet the company on the 747 and one. It really bet the company in certain respects on the 777 and one. And then again on the 787, redefining flight on each one of these. As much hell as the 737 has taken, it too redefined flight, basically a 707 fuselage shorter with two engines. Uh, in, in terms of becoming the world's most populous uh, commercial uh, airliner. Um, and on all of those programs, arguably the 787 was the only one that the company didn't really execute correctly at launch. 
Um, what, what is the sort of the legacy that we should remember uh, and folks should remember? I point out it's not really the final delivery. There are two uh, presidential airplanes that have yet to be delivered, even though they don't count. You know, they've already been produced and technically already uh, delivered. Uh, but anyway, you know, whoever wants to grab this and go really quickly around the horn on, you know, sort of the significance of of the moment. And I have to say, I mean, I it just again, remembering Everett, seeing 747s look tiny from that balcony uh, was still one of the most, you know, Im images etched in my mind. And it looks like you're literally looking two miles away in a building at a 747 and it looked small in the confines of that building. Anyway, just got to say, uh, you know, uh, just truly one of the most amazing uh, things ever, that production line. Anyway, whoever wants to jump on, we go around the horn and then just talk a little bit about defense real quick before we part for the week. If nobody minds, I think I'd love to take a first stab at it. Uh, go ahead. You know, my first my first uh, factory tour in the aircraft world uh, early in my career, 30-something years ago, and it was back then that the Dash 400 was just getting going, um, I, I'd make two points. One, the whole 747 story kind of to a certain extent revolves around the engine because it was the first commercial jetliner to leverage the technology of high bypass turbofans, which really transformed aviation economics. The second point is the 747 itself, the original was badly planned, you know, the end of the post-Cold War economic boom, uh, the start of some serious trouble in the oil market, you know, oh my God. And as a consequence, it doesn't really show up in the numbers as catalyzing air travel growth. But then there's the Dash 400 arriving circa 1989 and me showing up as a tourist. And that was an impossibly well-timed beast. I, I think you look at the history, the cultural impact of the 747, it's, it's to me, it's about the Dash 400 because it was the first real true trans-Pacific machine. I mean, you could do Japan before that from the West Coast, kind of, sort of, with, you know, the, I guess the Dash 200, maybe the SP, but it took the 400 to really be trans-Pacific without stopping in Alaska or Hawaii or something like that. And that happened to coincide with the start of the most amazing economic miracle uh, this planet has seen, the Asian story of the 1990s. So I remember very well, uh, you know, early in my career, you start to see these enormous orders from, you know, Singapore, Taiwan, Malaysia, Thailand, et cetera, et cetera, all of them gearing up with this plane, both for passengers and later for cargo, aiding, abetting, and helping to drive one of the most impressive economic and indeed socioeconomic growth stories that the planet has seen. I've got very little to add to what, uh, you know, to Richard's wonderful and incredibly accurate description of the importance of the 747. Um, I mean, all I'd say is what will I what will I remember and miss about it? The upper deck of a four hundred, actually, the upper deck of a seven four seven was just the best club in the uh, in the sky, uh, the best <laughs> cabin in the sky by a long way. Every single time, um, you know, that was remarkable. That will never be repeated. Uh, I, I remember when we we went on our honeymoon, we sat on the upper deck uh, of a seven forty seven, and and my wife and I both thought, boy, we've really arrived. You know, we're we were up here in in the in the thin uh, air, as as it were. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, if you, if you if you go back to the beginning of the program, I mean, the seven four really opened travel to the masses by spreading cost, by spreading cost across so many seats. Um, so it allowed you know a, a broader group of air travelers to, to travel globally. Right? And that's, I mean, it really is an airplane that kind of changed the world. 
indeed. Um, okay, uh, real quick, Sash, uh, walk us through the austere or aster uh, order, 700 missiles between uh, France uh, and Italy, uh, and sort of more broadly what we're seeing uh, from uh, European governments in terms of sort of bolstering their military capabilities, right? I mean, there's a, there's a tendency for us in the United States of missing stuff like this when our allies and partners doing it. The debate tends to focus a little bit too much on you know, 2%, yay or nay, um, you know, than some of the concrete things that our friends uh, are doing. Yeah, and actually, the other thing that we overfocus on is combat aircraft. Combat aircraft have not featured materially in the, in the Ukraine war. Um, they fly, they die, as air defenders always say. Um, but what has been remarkable about the war in Ukraine has been the density of ground-based air defense and the usage of ground-based air defense. There are hundreds of missiles fired every week, a lot of which hit stuff. Um, I think this has been the war of the, the war of the SAM. I mean, certainly, the, you know, since uh, the Arab-Israeli wars, this has been the one where that's mattered. And what we saw this week was France and Italy, who are the co-developers of the Aster missile, um, putting in a 2 billion euro order, which is not probably the biggest order that European countries have put in for, uh, you know, missiles in, in recent uh, years, um, just to stock up on another 700 Aster missiles. What are they going to use them for? Some, I mean, you know, Aster has got a naval um, application. Um, it's got a land-based application. And I think probably a bit of both. And uh, France also signed a side letter to deliver an Aster um, missile system including its associated TALIS radar to Ukraine. So, you know, I suspect a couple of hundred of the missiles are going to go there. But this is, you know, it's significant. This is a lot of missiles by European standards. They're expensive. They're three million euros each. Um, and the country that this puts the most well pressure, by, you know, certainly this is, you know, a very attractive bait in the water, is the UK. The UK has, I'm embarrassed to say, next to no air defence missiles missiles of any sort. Um, we, you know, traded out of them all over the last uh, 20, 25 years or so uh, and desperately need some. Um, the UK does use Aster on the Type 45 destroyers and very, very successfully it is there with a slightly different radar system. Um, I would be surprised if France and Italy didn't say to the UK, come on in on our order. Production line is going to run hot. We would, you know, love you to uh, to take some more missiles alongside this, right. we could extend the production run, and you, the UK, could actually get back into ground-based air defence rather than relying on everybody else to do that job for you. Let's watch and see. Uh, it's going to be uh, very interesting indeed. And of course, the Sea Viper uh, is what it's called when it's deployed off of yeah. uh, the great uh, daring uh, class uh, ships that that really do have an extraordinary radar uh, system on them. Uh, actually, I mean, the, yeah. the envy of many nations around the world. Uh, I would say even even among the U.S. Navy, uh, when when they initially saw that capability, was uh, as as folks yeah. say, eye watering. Uh, very quickly, um, uh, give us an update on uh, the war and what it is uh, that we're seeing. Obviously, Russia accelerating uh, its assault. We're rounding the one year anniversary. Putin wants to show gains. There's a lot more infighting happening uh, among uh, the uh, Prigozhin, certainly uh, positioning himself. Um, as as the bull, uh, the guy sort of getting it done on the ground, irrespective of the casualties taken now with uh, Western officials saying 200,000 Russian casualties uh, in dead and wounded. Uh, and if you talk to a lot of Russians, they would agree that that number is about correct. Um, you know, walk us through where we are 
and the kind of capabilities that Ukraine is going to need to pull this off because the Russians are really using frontal assaults, uh, very Soviet style, um, you know, uh, where defenders are oversaturated. And then Wagner Group, for example, does a flanking attack. Um, hard way to gain a lot of territory. Uh, but, you know, Russian factories are running uh, and apparently still have access to Western avionics to make their weapons. Walk us through real quick where we are and where we're going. Yeah, um, look, we, we had a stalemate in the middle of winter and it's tilting or has tilted a bit in Russia's favor. I mean, you know, Russia is doing the rational thing. They know that Ukraine is going to get hundreds of Western tanks and infantry fighting vehicles um, by, by the spring and will develop may already be developing a capability to use those in a very aggressive combined arms um, uh, series, of, series of attacks pretty soon thereafter. Um, so if you're Russia, you've, you've got to be putting in, you want to put in an assault early, you want to take the Ukrainians off balance and keep them off balance so that when they do uh, get these tanks and IFEs, they, they're forced to use them in penny packets in defense rather than husbanding them for um, a, a big assaults. Downside, if you are a Russian soldier, and you know, actually we're talking about conscripts in all but name, it's utterly brutal and, and revolting. But, you know, this is what the Russians have done, you know, pretty regularly in the last three quarters of a century or so, and uh, it, it seems to work for them at the moment. I'm very struck in this war by the degree to which um, the various, uh, you know, gains that each side gets are transient. Um, you know, we had a we had a period where uh, the Russians were you know, advancing early on. The Ukrainians deployed anti-armor weapons that stopped them, that turned the tide. The Ukrainians started counterattacking that worked for a bit and then stopped the um, uh, uh, you know, the US and its allies supplied um, the GMLRS rockets and high Mars and uh, M2, M270s. And that's sort of all of that's been. Uh, neutralized to, to some extent. And what we now have is the Russians going, you know, back to brute force and, and mass and hoping that they can they can keep the Ukrainians off balance for, uh, you know, for months to come. Um, Nail-biting stuff. Uh, and, you know, very, very tough for the Ukrainians. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you all have a great day, great uh, weekend, great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks again, Vago. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much, Vago. Always great to be out, Vago. Thanks.